Well, Patty, I'm excited about this episode. Of course, before we get into it, we want to, of course, again, say this uh, this entire podcast episode, our podcast is sponsored by NMI.com, a leader in gateways, omni-channel solutions. Just really excited about the new partnership that we have with them. Yeah, and uh, I'm really excited about our interview this week, everybody. I got to interview James, which I don't yes, get indeed. to do a whole lot. Uh, you know, <laughs> we... Uh, we uh, wax poetic on the W-2s versus 1099s. Yes. And, um, and then uh, we have a great insider's report on uh, PayPal's efforts to um, capture more brick and mortar and uh, make headway into the omni-channel space. Yeah, they've got their point of sale system, so they're they're they've got their square killer, and yes. so they're they're ready to go to market, and uh, they're putting ads out everywhere. So yeah, I think it's an exciting episode. Didn't do the questions in the field today because I I just talked so long on my interview, so we decided to <laughs> we decided we won't uh, we won't bore everybody with me twice. We'll just right. do that once. So but it's a great interview, so uh, let's go. All right. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey everybody, it's Patty here and I'm with James. This week we're going to give you a very special um, interview. I'm going to interview James on a topic that comes up a lot. It's come up a lot in our in our past interviews and I know James tells me he gets these question, this question a lot from his consulting clients. Whether or not, what are the pros and cons of building your sales team around a W-2 or a 1099 workforce? Yeah. James, thanks for uh Thanks for agreeing to do this with me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking on the questions today and uh, you know doing these roles. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it. Like you said, it's it's something that um, just comes up so often. Like you said in our past interviews, but even more in the consulting practice, it's unbelievable. Right before this recording, I literally had two back to back, thirty minute remote sessions with consulting clients. Both of those were about do we do 1099, do we do W two, or you know how do we implement and things. So I'm excited to talk about it today for sure. Well, well, James, let's cut right to the chase and, you know, give us a sense, if you would, because I'm not sure everybody out there knows it. And frankly, I didn't understand the nuances until I started working with you. You know, what is the difference between a 1099 and a W-2? And what's the state of the market? What's where? Where is the market going these days? I know early on, it seemed to me that almost everybody was a 1099. But it, right. I've, I've, I've met more and more ISOs in recent years who you know or take pride in the fact that they that they employ a uh, dedicated staff of W2s so yeah yeah definitely well it, it's such an interesting um situation we have right now because first of all it's important to understand that there's so many misconceptions and and you know uh false concepts around these two things and what they are so mm. ult- ultimately 1099 versus W2 is very simply it's actually a legal or tax uh, concept, right? Right, right. Um, and so it's come to mean a lot of different things that it that it doesn't actually mean. So, you know, when we talk about it from a tax or legal perspective, of course, a 1099 contractor means they are fully independent and you can't direct their activity. You can right. give them objectives and goals. So I usually tell my consulting clients, I say, you know, they'll, they'll ask me questions like, James, well, what can we tell a 1099 to do? Like, you know, what what can we do? And I say, you could tell your 1099 sales agents to do anything that you could tell your roofing contractor to do, right? Right, right. So if your roofing contractor makes a commitment to come at nine o'clock tomorrow morning and start working on your roof, then you can say, hey, what? it's 11 o'clock, where are you, right? Right, right. Uh, If your roofing contractor makes a commitment to replace the shingles on the entire roof, but they only replaced half, 
Well, you could reach out and say, I have a problem with that. If you agree to pay your roofing contractor a certain amount and they want more money, well, you get, you know, so those are the kinds of things you can deal with. So when we have salespeople that are 1099, certainly if we get a commitment from them that they're going to take some action, um, we could reach out and say, hey, I noticed you didn't take that action. We may have to end our contract with you because we thought you made a commitment to this, this activity. Or you could say, well, you know, as a active contractor with us, we expect certain results, right? Right, right. What you can't do is you can't say, hey, you need to be at a weekly meeting every Monday at 8 a.m., mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's an employee. That's not a contractor. And so, you know, that's the 1099 contractor. Where we start getting into the W-2 employee you have all of the same flexibility, which is interesting. So as a W-2, you could make your W-2 employees just as independent as a 1099 contractor. Okay. You, you don't have to keep your employees accountable. It's not like you're required by law to make your employees accountable. But what you do is you have a lot more options for accountability. So as a W-2, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you can say we have a weekly sales meeting. You know, right. You can say you have to start prospecting at 9 a.m. and you can't stop before 4 p.m. You know, you can say all of those things. Um, and so it becomes a lot, there's a lot more options from a management and an accounting perspective. So ultimately, big picture, 1099 sales team, we have to be cautious about how we're directing their activity. We have to be very cautious about the resources we provide them with. Are we giving them business cards? Are we giving them, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, salary type compensation, things like that? Um, are we treating them like an employee or like a contractor? We have to be careful there because there are serious legal repercussions and I'm not right. an attorney and none of this is legal advice. But if you're going to have those 1099 contractors, you would want to definitely consult an attorney about, are you treating them like an, an employee? Because ultimately then if they get, God forbid, in a car wreck or they slip on, on a sidewalk out prospecting, right. they could sue you and say, well, actually I was an employee. I was treated like an employee. So they're going to they're gonna owe me benefits, et cetera. So there, there's real liability there versus an employee where you can pay an employee straight commission. You can pay an employee however you want. You can make them independent, but you have a lot more options to pay them differently, to provide accountability, to provide benefits. And so there's a lot more options as a W-2. Yeah, yeah. And it also, it would, it would seem to me, it's not only the options, but the control factor, right? Yes. I mean, yes. that I think is that really, accountability. that accountability really counts for a lot, so to it speak. Um, and I know what, you know, it's interesting. I used to think a lot of times I'd see an agent, you know, who I knew worked for a particular ISO, right. but they'd have their own little business name on their cards, right? Yes. yes. And that's why, because right. if you're putting, you know, XYZ ISO on there, then at some point they can say, hey, I'm an employee because they gave me business cards. Sure. And, and you know, what you'll find is most of the larger ISOs that have the 1099s, they deal with all of that in their agent agreement where they'll say, hey, we're allowing you to use our brand, but they make it very clear. It's, you know, I talked to a new an agent that was new to the industry recently and he said, man, all the agreements I got from the different companies I looked at were 20 pages, 30 pages. You know, what is up with this industry? And, you know, one of the primary things is that these contracts are, are verbose in this way because they have to make it clear right. that this agent is not an employee, even though they're doing a lot of things that they would do for an employee. Um, and so, they, you know, you will see agents that have, you know, it's okay for them to have the logo of the of the processor on the card, but if they're going to do that and the processor is going to provide this stuff, they just have to be very cautious in the agreement to say, Hey, look, we're providing this as a resource to a contractor, not as something as a resource to an employee. Right. Right. So what about the recruiting um, piece? I mean, it would seem to me 
that you're going to use different types of targeting techniques. You're going to target different audiences, even if you're going after one versus the other. Could you, could you speak to that for a minute? Yeah. Great question, Patty. And, And it's so important because this is really where the decision comes in. So we have people say, well, should it be 1099 or W2? And my next question is always, well, who are you trying to recruit? Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're trying to recruit industry veteran agents, you know, that have been around forever and they have been a 1099 and they have all this independence and they own their residual income and they have all of this, well, you're going to bring them on as a 1099. They, that person, it's very unlikely that you're going to bring them from, you know, they've been a 1099 for 10 years, successful as a 1099, you're going to bring them to W-2. Right, right. Now, having said that, what's interesting is there are a lot of agents in our industry who, frankly, they flopped, you know, they came from a W-2 as a mortgage broker or whatever. Mm -hmm. They came into our industry and they realized, you know, they actually do better with a little more accountability, a little more structure, they weren't able to get the prospecting done and mm-hmm. they need, they, they, they don't need it maybe, but they do better when they have a little bit more of a, of a culture. Right. And so I have seen reps that have been 1099 for two or three years, but without much success. And then they'll say, well, wait a second, if I go W2, what can you offer? And it's like, well, we're going to give you your sales manager and you're going to have a coach and you're going to have this support person and you're going to have accountability and you're, we're going to give you leads and referrals and, you know, whatever these, mm-hmm. these things are. And so, you know, you can bring that person in. So, you know, you have these two groups of experienced reps, those who, who have experienced success 1099 they're going to want to stay 1099. Right. Um, then you have those that have been 1099 without success. They will be interested because it, because they see the opportunity and they're like, wow, residual income is amazing. The payments industry has opportunity, but I wasn't able to capture it as 1099. There are agents that fit that description that are like, Hey, let's, let's try a W2 model. Maybe we can make it go over there. So, so you have those now where the real question comes in is with these agents that are brand new to the industry. Right. And this is where I imagine that a big chunk of our listeners are going to disagree with me. And I'm totally okay with that. You know, as you know, I like to be the contrarian sometimes. Sometimes. Yes, sometimes, not very often. Um, But, uh, you know, in truth, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I've seen it play out so many times. If you're bringing brand new people in, um, whether they are 1099 or W-2, you are going to have to give them an enormous amount of support, an enormous amount of help. And so can you be successful bringing them in as 1099? Yes, absolutely you can. I've seen it done. However, it is extremely difficult. And the main reason it's difficult is because of one variable, and that variable is work, okay? Mm -hmm. In order to get somebody in, it's like, okay, I recruited this person that's good at sales, but you now need them to go work. They have to go prospecting. Right. And if they're 1099, you can't make them. Right. And you, they may have had their entire career. They may have had somebody making them go prospect. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And now they don't have that. And so they are going to struggle in that situation. So you want to be aware of that. And as you're recruiting people into the industry from other industries, you just want to be really aware what is the structure of the sales organizations in the industry they're coming from, right? Right. And again, this goes back to the recruiting process. So we're talking to them and saying, okay, what was the structure that you had? And if you're looking at that W-2 model and they've been a real estate, they've been a very successful real estate agent for five years, 
as an independent contractor and they've been very successful at that and they've built up a great you know clientele and a, and a you know group of people that know them in the area well they're probably going to gravitate more towards that 1099 model if that's who you're going after then you want to do 1099 but if you're talking about the insurance agent that was used to more of a model that was w2 and they had some flexibility but they were like hey this is when we do prospecting this is when we do this um they're going to gravitate much more towards that um, W-2 model. That's what they're going to be used to. So the more green the agent, the less experienced the agent in their sales career in general, mm -hmm. much more likely that they're going to be successful W-2 where they can have some structure and accountability. Yeah. And I also, you know, you brought up an interesting point there when you brought up mortgage bankers, right? Uh -huh. I mean, those are people that, you know, they work for the bank, but, you know, they also live on, you know, commissions. Yes. So, um, and I've noticed a lot of people I've met in this business who have come from the mortgage side of the, of the yes. house, you yes. know, and I, when you were talking about it, it was like, I can't imagine those guys just being 1099s. Right. You know, because there's, and I'm sure there's other sec, other, you know, sales professions that are similar, sure. right. but that one really jumps to, to mind um, because they're very, when you work for a bank, it's so structured. Yes. You know, it is. And, it is. And well, I, and really, you know, frankly, most sales jobs are pretty structured. I mean, there, there's always that level of, um, of, you know, flexibility for sure. But, you know, you think about a car salesman, you know, right. I talk to people all the time, they get into our industry, they were, there was car salesman. Okay. And they come into the industry and they get recruited by somebody and they, and, you know, they've spent the last 10 years selling people that walked onto the car lot. Right. And they didn't go out to find somebody. No. And all of a sudden they get recruited as a 1099 and the processor's like, well, you signed your agreement. Good luck. And, yeah. and then they wonder like, oh, it's so frustrating that these people don't make any sales. Well, duh. You know, they, yeah, yeah. they've spent like the last 10 years getting people walking on the lot. They have no idea what to do and right. they have nobody to show them what to do. So again, you know, it's not a blanket statement. Absolutely. I know ISOs that bring in green agents and they actually go out in the field with them and they prospect with them and they walk that line of 1099 versus W-2. But ultimately, they do get frustrated with the fact that they just don't have any real leverage. I mean, what are you going to do if they don't prospect? You can't fire them. I mean, I guess you can right. revoke their contract, but then what? You just wasted all your time. So there's no real leverage. Um, whereas as we talk more about compensation and stuff, you can create that leverage and that accountability for those W-2s. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the other thing I was thinking that, again, what you were saying when you were saying all this, it really strikes me that it's important how much commitment the ISO is willing to put into yeah. the new hire, right? I mean, if you're going to, if you're willing to sit down and work with them and train them and every, and, you know, take them out on, you know, initial calls, Right. Uh, it's going to be a much different than, if, like you say, if they just sign a contract and say, have at it. Exactly. And, and again, it, it really does come down to recruiting. It's like, who right. are you, you know, how much commitment do you want them to have as well? Right. So how much mm -hmm. commitment are you going to put into it? And then what's the commitment level you're looking for in return? If you are looking for a, you have a low commitment level, you don't want to provide that much, but you're looking for a high commitment level in return. Well, the only way to get that is to buy it by offering really high residual splits and looking for very experienced agents that don't right. need a lot of handholding. You know, they've yeah. already sold 200 merchant accounts. They're just looking for a better deal. Well, right. then there you go. You go after them. You just got to let them know it's available, um, you know, and, and recruit people in that way. 
Um, but as you start to shift those scales and you say, well, okay, I'm, I'm willing to pay a full-time trainer. I'm willing to pay some full-time people to help. And I'm willing to get people out in the field and stuff. Then you start to look for that commitment level from, you know, the salesperson as well, that full-time commitment. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, if I'm going to do all that, why don't I just make them W2 and I can actually tell them what to do, you know? So, so I think there's that, I think there's that balance. And again, not a blanket statement for everybody, but I think there's definitely a balance there. And I think there's also Patty, um, there's an evolution that happens. Um, What's super interesting to me is that most of the bigger companies now that are doing the W2 model, most of them do have a 1099 type of option as well. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. they'll do both. And so they'll bring people in and say, well, you're a good fit for W2 because you've never sold merchant services. But if you can get to X, you know, residuals or whatever, we'll let you go 1099 and you own the residuals. Right. Right. And so, so there's a path. And so, yeah, there's people that are going to come in that would be a good fit 1099 eventually, but they've never sold a merchant account to get those first 30 to 50 deals. They may need some additional structure and accountability to hit that. Yeah. Well, you hit on compensation. Let's let's delve into that for sure. a minute. You know, um, you know, how does it differ between the, the W two and the ten ninety nine, and what are you paying for? You know, right. with one versus the other. Yeah. So you know, so ultimately, we have our straight commission option, right? Which mm-hmm. that's an option for ten ninety nine or W two. Uh, no question, right? You can absolutely do a W two model straight commission, and and that's a lot of people do that. Um, okay. They're pitching a vision of what you could make. Um, And a lot of these companies are paying lower back-end residuals in exchange for higher upfront. So they're they're literally doing kind of like we've talked about about a residual buyout. Right. A lot of these companies with W-2 models, what they're doing is they're literally doing like a buyout upfront. So they're saying, hey, we're only going to give you, you know, 10, 15, 20% residual or whatever it is, but we're going to buy the equivalent of 50% residual upfront. Um, and so they're paying a lot of money on an account. That's what's helping because as people come in with compensation, we have to think about not only how are we motivating them to sell, we also have to think about how viable is our compensation option to allow them to stay at it long enough to be successful. Right. 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 So what I've seen with some of the models, they're bringing them in and they're literally paying them, you know, it's these agents are making a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars on a sale. So it's like, you know, we're going to go straight commission, but we're going to help you get that first sale within your first 30 days. And you're going to make a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks because we're going to basically buy all the margin on it. Um, And so that's an option. Um, that's an option for sure. I see that a lot more W2 than 1099, but Mm -hmm. we see it on the 1099 side as well. We see the, the profit true ups is a great example of this. Mm -hmm. Um, It takes a little longer to pay out on those, usually 30, 60, 90 days or so, but they're looking at the overall profitability of the account, uh, multiplying it by 12 or 10 or an eight or six, whatever. And depending on if it's on their split or the agent split and they're getting a, a bulk amount up front there. So, we see those options and there's certainly a million ways to structure that. Um, what I personally have been advising a lot of my consulting clients to do that's working really well is to go ahead and actually, you know, bring on some W-2s. If you're going to bring them in green, bring them in W-2 mm-hmm. and actually pay them, which I know is just this insane idea, <laughs> you know. You mean um, pay them a salary? You actually pay them a salary, um, right? but you don't pay them a salary for nothing you pay them a salary in exchange for verified prospecting activity. Ah, okay. Yeah, sure. So let me, let me make the case for this. Okay. Um, So, you know, ultimately there are two variables. If you want 
a successful sales team. Variable number one is hire people who can sell. Of course. Variable number two is get them in front of qualified prospects. Yes. That's yes. it. Now, right. in the middle, there's training. You know, you have, they have to be trained to be able to do that, of course. Of course. But ultimately, good salespeople generally are pretty good at selling. I mean, when I first came in the industry, I mean, my first sale, you know, the poor person I sold, I mean, I had no idea what I was talking about, you know. I'm just really good at sales, you know, right, right. I mean, that's what I do. You know what I mean? Um, but, you know, I, over time, as I got more confident, more training and understood things more, I was even better, you know? So there's definitely the training variable, but ultimately there is just getting people that are good at sales in the door and then getting them to go out and actually talk to people. So mm -hmm. if you handle variable number one with your recruiting process and you validate their track record of sales success, then you know, there's only one variable left. They just have to go work. Right. And then it's going to work out. <laughs> so what I found is bringing them in and saying, hey, we're going to pay you four, five, six hundred $600 a week in exchange for walking into somewhere between around 100 businesses a week, maybe 150, somewhere in that range. And so you have to validate that CRM database, spot checking, right? So you, you literally could print them a paper list if you wanted right. and say, here are the 100 businesses in your area we want you to walk into. You probably want to do 150 since some are going to be bad information. So they have to go in and they have to write notes. You know, I talked to Susan. She said the owner wasn't in. I'm going to come back this day. Or Tom's the owner. He was not interested. You know, whatever. And so we're going to get into more of the onboarding stuff. But from a compensation perspective, you're paying them to do that. And what that does is it accomplishes two things that are so important early on. Number one, it accomplishes the idea of weeding out the people that are not going to work out yeah, right. very quickly, like yeah. within a couple of days. I mean, because 100, 100 businesses is a lot of businesses. 150 is a lot of businesses. Right. If you're not good and you're, and you're uncomfortable doing that, you know, we've talked in the past about that discomfort level, you know, the, yes. when you first start out, you know, if you don't get over that, like in the first week, you're not going to work. Exactly. I mean, it's just and not going to work. It's true. And, and what will happen, what's interesting about that approach is that, you know, walking into 20 businesses is going to take between two to four hours. Okay. So depending okay. on, you know, rural versus, you know, if you're walking into it, if you got a strip mall, there might be right. 20 businesses in strip mall, it might take you an hour and a half, especially if you're not very good. And most of them tell you no. <laughs> That's not going to take very long. Um, versus if you're in very rural area, you got to drive, you know, five, 10 minutes between stops, things like right. that. Right? right. So you're only asking people to work two to four hours a day. So it's not an unrealistic expectation by any stretch. Mm -hmm. um, but what will happen is you'll have, so, you'll have a percentage and this is going to pin, this is how you know how good your recruiters are, but you're going to have a percentage usually going to be somewhere between 10% to as much as 30% of the people that you recruit and take through your training process for a couple of days you're going to throw them out in the field. And within two, three days, they are going to reach out and say, Hey, I'm sorry. I thought I could do this, but I can't because they, they see the sure. writing on the wall. They sure. know you're not going to pay them unless they do these visits. Right. And right. they realize after day two that they stopped each day after one and they went home because they couldn't do it and they're going to quit. Right. 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 So right. you're going to weed them out very quickly. They're going to, they're going to weed themselves out, which is perfect. Saving your cash flow. And what you're going to find is, if, if your training process is right and your management process is right, there's going to be a very small percentage of these people that are going to be able to make it through the onboarding process that are not going to be successful. I mean, unless you're, you know, hiring people that have no sales experience, mm -hmm. I mean, 
and or you're not training them at all. I mean, if they're out there, they're prospecting, and they have sales experience. That's a winning they, formula. Yeah, they shouldn't as long as they have the training and they have the experience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, what about onboarding? Let's 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 yeah, pivot to sure. that if you don't mind. And you know, I'm sure there are subtle differences, you know, in terms of how do you get them productive. You've touched on some of those a moment ago, but I'm sure there's more, you know, sure. how does each model fit in? How does sure. the board onboarding process fit into each model? Yeah. So I, I love this question because what's interesting is that it actually does not affect the onboarding objectives. However, if you put people in the wrong plan from a compensation perspective here, Uh this comes down to compensation. You know, if you put them in the wrong compensation plan, it's just going to mean that you're not going to be successful at your objectives. Okay. So there's really, in my opinion, there's basically three objectives that you're looking to accomplish as you move them through the onboarding. Okay. So, Objective number one is confidence, okay? And confidence is the objective of training. I've Mm -hmm. talked about this before. Mm -hmm. Huge mistake I see people make in our industry all the time is they're training in order to impart knowledge and information. And that's actually not the purpose of the training. If you're training salespeople, of course, they're going to get knowledge. Of course, they're going to get information. They're going to retain a shockingly small percentage of it of course. But the real purpose is confidence. Why right. are you training them? Because if they, once they feel like they know what they're talking about, mm-hmm. they're going to be much more likely to take action. Okay. Sure. sure. So step number one is just confidence. And this is a tough one. Again, as you bring people in, you have to make sure that you're accomplishing that objective. You cannot move to the next one. Right. 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 And so people will say, well, James, that doesn't apply to me because I'm, I'm recruiting experienced agents. Okay. So how confident are they with your paperwork, Mm -hmm. with your online merchant application, with your pricing, with your compensation until they are confident that they understand those things, they will not board a deal with you. Right. They'll continue boarding deals with their old company because why? Because they're confident. They know they're going to get paid. They know that if the merchant says yes, that they're going to know what to do, right? Right. So until you walk them through an onboarding process of confidence, they're not going to move forward. You Mm -hmm. get a brand new green agent. They're going to acquire a lot more training. Mm -hmm. Same objective, confidence. Once they are confident with what you have to offer, then and only then are they going to take action, which is step number two. Okay. So step number one is confidence. Mm -hmm. Step number two is activity, taking action. So again, you say, well, James, this doesn't apply. I've got 1099 agents. They're independent. They're good to go. Um, I don't need to worry about that. Yes, you do. So how does it manifest? Well, it manifests totally different depending on the reps that you're working with. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. if you're recruiting experienced bank card professionals, the action that you need to get them to take is to bring you up at their next meeting. Right. Right. Now, are they going to run into question marks in their mind as they're making this pitch? Because we all, I mean, if you've ever sold merchant services like I have, when somebody is interested, you know, nothing else matters. I am going to get this yes. Yes. And when I get this yes, the last thing I want to do is fumble around with a new online app that I don't understand. Uh, Yeah, sure. I don't want to look like an idiot. I just got a yes. I want to look like I'm really smart. Let's make this a smooth process, right? 
Mm-hmm. So, so what happens though is if you want to get these 1099 reps, I'll give you a, a great tip. What you want to do is start texting them and say, hey, when is your next sales meeting? You know, well, I've got, you know, this auto repair place I'm going to go back to on Thursday or I'm going to go prospecting tomorrow. Okay, well, what time do you think you're going to be doing that? Oh, around 11. Okay, I'm going to make myself available from 11 to 11.30. If you have any questions while you're talking to that merchant about our, our agreement, about our application, about what, you know, your commission, the, the equipment that's available, right, please right. text or call me because we want to get XYZ auto repair. Let's make that our first deal together. You know, it requires that, that additional step. Right. Because otherwise they're going to be taking action, but it's not going to be for you. And that's the confusion. People think, well, I'm recruiting experienced reps. I don't have to get them to take action. They're going to take action on their own. Yes. It's yeah, just not going not to be for you. For you. Exactly. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And so then we go into our, our less experienced green agents, right? Well, mm-hmm. the action we want them to take is, to is get out. simply to just go prospecting. <laughs> right. right. Turn off Netflix, you know, get off your butt and go put out on a pair and... of pants or, you know, and, and yeah. let's yeah. go. Now, you know, getting them to take that action, I'll tell you the key. There's only one key to it. The key to getting those reps to take action is to make action the only objective. Mm. The only measure of success the first week or two for a new rep is action. Right. Now, that sounds obvious, but I, I know hardly anybody that does that. What, what do oh, they do? I, right, exactly. If, if there's nobody over holding, lording over them, they're just going to be sitting around watching Netflix or something. Right. Well, yeah. well, and, and the other thing that will happen is they're going to bring them a goal and say, we're so excited for you to get out there and start selling. Well, no, that's not right. Now in their mind, they're going, okay, I've got to go make a sale. Well, it's, uh, it's likely that their confidence level is not high enough to go make a sale yet. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So instead it's, Hey, we're going to go prospecting. You get to the end of the day today. Did you walk into your 20 businesses? If yes, you had a successful day. Congratulations. We're so excited that we're going to pay you at the end of the week because you're doing this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, everybody kicked me out. Everybody slammed that nobody was interested. Good job. We don't care about that right now. We just want you to take action. Then, of course, we're going to be having these conversations. How did it go? What did you say? What did they say? How can we improve? And so it's a training opportunity, but we've got to get them to take action because once they get through those first 100 to 200 businesses, their confidence is going to start to build because they're going to say, okay, I faced this issue before I asked and I I understand what to say. I'm going to say this. And so as that confidence builds, but you've got to give them time to celebrate their success of taking action. Right, 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 right. And and I take this really far with my consulting clients and it's, it's been, uh, I love this process of working with them where we'll have one agent that walked into three businesses Mm-hmm. And the third one was so interested and so upset with their current provider that they gave him a statement. And then the rep went home, sent the statement in to their manager and said, hey, I'm excited. I got a statement, right? And this is their first week, you know. Then we'll have another agent that went to 20 businesses and they did not get a statement. They got a few people maybe interested or whatever, but, you know, they weren't able to get that first statement. And I say, okay, which one of those two reps had a more successful day? The one that walked into 20 businesses. Yes. Right. And so when we're reaching out to the agent that walked into three and we're saying, oh, that's fantastic that you got a statement. Congratulations. How many businesses did you walk into today? Three. Okay. So are you going back out in the field? Well, I got a statement today. Right. But a successful day right now is 20 businesses a day. Right. 
Right. You get a statement. That's awesome. Go to the next one. Go to the next one. Go to the next one. Mm -hmm. It's the success is tied to the activity and nothing else. Right. Right. Um, so, yeah. So we go from, we have, we have confidence, which is through training and all that. We have taking action. And then the third phase of onboarding is results. Right. right. So this is where we actually are saying now we want results. And so back to compensation a little bit, we pay them every week, you know, four or $500, $600 a week to walk into hundred businesses week one. Week two, we say walk into 100 businesses and make sure you bring us two or three statements. Mm -hmm. You don't have to make a sale. Just bring us some statements. You know, we'll, we'll help you make a, a few sales. Maybe by week three or four, then you're saying do 100 businesses, get us three or four statements, make one sale, right? And so you're, you're, you're pacing in. Mm -hmm. The confidence leads to activity. The activity then is going to lead to the results, and you're going to expect those results over time. So it is a scary model to pay the the comp every week because you know you are going to potentially burn two or three weeks before there's any actual like results that are required. Um, but again, if you're doing all of that and then you're not getting the results, one of two things is happening: either your recruiting is not up to par, and you're recruiting people that can't sell, or and or you don't have the training and the management to ensure that they're confident and that they're actually working out in the field. Let me ask you, what about the concept And I've heard agents talk about this and ISOs talk about this, where you have sort of like an in-house mentor or, or a manager um, who actually goes out with you on your first couple of sales and, yeah. and, and helps to sort of hold your hand. Is that a, yeah. is that still a viable uh, model or is, is that sort of a one-off thing? You know, it is, 100% viable. I see it work over and over again with a very, very tiny group of ISOs, mm -hmm. um, which always amazes me. And so, you know, one of the questions I love asking sales managers, executives of processing companies is I say, tell me what you sold before merchant services. Mm -hmm. And they'll say real estate. And I'll say, okay, did you see someone else sell a house before you made your first sale? And they inevitably say, yes. Mm -hmm. What did you sell? Oh, I sold mortgages. Did you watch or listen to someone else sell a mortgage before you sold your first one? Yes. Oh, I sold cars. Did you watch someone sell a car before you sold your first one? Yes. In almost without fail, when we're in a sales position, we see someone sell someone before we do. Right, right. And here we are in merchant services. <laughs> and the idea is, oh, you don't need that. You know, that's we're just selling payment processing here. Go out there and have a good time. Um, now, is it possible? Of course, I would say in, this is insane to say this, but I would be willing to bet that 75% of the agents in our industry that are successful today uh -huh. did not see someone make a sale before they made their first one. Huh, okay. That's very but if you ask them, they'll all say, oh, I wish I did <laughs> because it took me so long to figure out what I was doing. I had yeah. no idea. And so, yeah, absolutely. The idea of you know, really having people kind of partnering. And that's why I think your geographic strategy is so important as well. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you really want to make sure you're growing in a way that you do have some mentoring reps or some kind of infrastructure to help. Again, with the green reps, if you're recruiting experienced bank card professionals, of course, you don't need that. No, um, but, but I think, uh, there's, there's a lot of recruiting from other industries. And like yeah. I said, it seems to me to be a, a very logical way to go. But I like, yeah. like you said, it isn't done that often. It's not, not in our industry anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, James, this has been a really far-reaching conversation. I, I hope our uh, 
hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, Thank you. Want to give us a, an idea of where if somebody wants to talk to you about um, build, you know, training, building a W-2 or 1099 sales team. You want to, you know, they want some sure. more insights, some consulting work. Where should yeah, they sure. reach? So um, I'll just give my email out directly. They can just email me directly, james at ccsalespro.com. Um, so james at ccsalespro.com. I actually, uh, I had shut down the consulting practice, not shut it down, but I had stopped taking on new clients for a while there for about a year um, as we were getting ISO AMP up and running with the state right. analysis and all that. Right. Um, but we've gotten to a point now where I've started taking on a few select uh, clients. And so usually what we do is um, we'll get a new client that'll reach out and I'll generally schedule, we have like a couple different package deals, but mm -hmm. I generally do, I usually start with what we call our three and three, which is where we do a one hour call each week for three weeks. And then okay. we do a one hour call every month for three months. Um, okay. And so it's a total of six hours of consulting. And what it basically does is we, we usually take those first three calls to really establish the objective, you know, and mm -hmm. the plan the, you know, what exactly are we trying to accomplish? What's the one objective that we want to do? It's like, I want to scale my team. I want to increase conversion rate. I want to whatever, restructure my processing relationship, you know, whatever it is. And so we'll take, you know, the first call to establish the objective, the next couple of weekly calls to say, okay, what's our plan? How are we going to accomplish this objective? What's the, what's the battle plan? Right. Then you start executing that plan and we do a monthly call to say, okay, how's it going? What are the assumptions that we made that, are, that we found out were incorrect? Um, and what I find is, you know, that takes us over a four month period. So the first month we got those three weekly calls and then the next three months. And it's not, you know, we don't structure it that much. I mean, if people want to spread it out, that's fine. But what I find is that's a pretty good period of time. It's like one quarter of your year um, to say, what's one objective that we want to accomplish? And then I can work with you on that one objective. So if that sounds like something that you might be interested in, um, I generally try to leave some consulting time in my schedule available each week. So just reach out james at ccsalespro.com. Glad to talk with you more about it. And uh, what about individual reps? If they want to, you know, here's a good time to plug oh, yeah. your various training. Great you know, question. <laughs> well, this is great, Patty. I'm loving this interview. Um, yeah, no, if they go to ccsalespro.com and uh, right up at the top there, or if they can scroll down a little bit, there's a, a block as well. But I, we have our six-week jumpstart program. Right, right. Um, I'm very proud of that program. I'll be, I'll be totally honest and transparent with our audience. I thought about killing that program <laughs> so many times just because, you know, it's honestly, it's not the most profitable thing that I do. But it's so rewarding that I just can never shut it down. I right. love it so much. Like, because I, you know, and it's funny, like I'll sit down, I have a pretty big team of employees, as you know, Patty, and right. I'll sit down with my operations guy or whatever. And it's like, James, we have all these other opportunities. Do you really want to spend time on this? And I just do because I feel it, it keeps me connected um, mm -hmm. to the to the agents. And I love working with them. Um, I'm thinking about an agent that uh, she started in the industry, like totally from scratch. And you know, I, we went through the process I just described is really all I do. I help the agents mm -hmm. really understand this. And she went out in the field her first day. She got uh, three businesses that are interested in a follow-up. And, wow. you know, it was so fun on our last call. We had a Zoom call and she was like, okay, the first one, what was it? The first one was a, um, a hair salon. The first one was a hair salon. And I, you know, she said, I told them they should do online appointment scheduling. And I have no idea what that is. Where do I go to find that? You know, <laughs> can I, can I do that? You know? And I'm like, yes, you can. And so then I made introductions to the right people to get her mm -hmm. set up with that. I connected her with the right processing company, you know, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, she said, okay, here's the next one. And so we went through and took 30 minutes and unpacked these three deals. And I just told her exactly what to, what you need to do, how to approach them. And it was a lot of fun. So 
I get a big kick out of it. I really love it. It's the cheapest way to get my time. Actually, I probably shouldn't be saying that because then our other <laughs> consultant clients come over, but go check it out. Six week jumpstart program comes with about 30 hours of video content. Uh-huh. Um, and then it comes with a series of short 15 minute calls with me, zoom calls or phone calls where I can really help you to make sure you have the right processing relationship. You have the right technology. And then what's the approach prospecting wise. And otherwise we work with, I'd say right now it's probably 75% experienced reps. Uh-huh. They want to go from 10 a month to 20. Right. That's sure. what they want. Um, and then the other, you know, smaller percentage is reps that are brand new to the industry. And I love working with them and, and helping sure. them get to the get get sure. going. It's a lot of fun. And then uh, we also should mention the Facebook page, the CC Sales Pro. The community. Yeah. Go to community. Facebook, go to CC Sales Pro community. Totally free. Totally um, free. Lots of lots of good give and take on there. People are always asking questions and there's yeah. always somebody with an answer, usually a right. few answers. And I find it re- very helpful. Yeah. And I, I totally keep promotions out. I don't even, I, as an example, I literally don't even allow myself to post my own podcast in there mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we promote, you know, uh, we promote uh, certain ISOs and stuff. And so, um, you know, we just don't even do that. So there's just zero promotion. We ban block anybody that does promos. So it's just really a helpful place to go. I wanted to create somewhere where, you know, I, I said, I wanted to create a Facebook group that I wish I had when I started 12 years ago. Yes. And this is that group. I go in there and I personally share insights and stuff, but mainly it's a place for just industry, uh, you know, agents to get together and share helpful information. So good stuff. Thanks. Thanks a lot, James. And, uh, Again, everybody, James, at, if you're an ISO and you're looking for a consultant, James at ccsalespro.com. And if you're an agent and you're uh, looking for um, you know, advice, counsel, training, go to ccsalespro.com and you can um, find easily the six-week Jumpstart program. Sign up for it. Awesome. Hey, Patty, thanks so much. Appreciate you taking the time to interview me today. Sure thing, James. Thank you. So Patty, NMI.com, our sponsor, just started last week with the first episode with them. You had a great response to that. Um, I'm really excited today. I think you're going to bring to us some things about some options that they have available and talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, what's really cool is, you know, it's always, as in anything, you can't expect merchants to settle for just any solution if it doesn't, you know, satisfy their wants and needs. You know, they need to have choices. And uh, that means that third-party integrations are really crucial. You know, the technology, the array of solutions, um, you need to be able to put together a total solution that's right for each individual merchant. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me about NMI is not only their technology, but the fact that they, I mean, I think they uh, integrate with something like 125 or more shopping, shopping carts. Right. Right. Yeah. They've really been the leader there. And I think it's because, you know, I know from firsthand experience how easy they are to integrate as a technology provider. Mm-hmm. And so I think because of that, you know, you've just seen so many shopping cart providers, point of sale systems and on down the line that have just chosen NMI to integrate with. Um, and so having NMI as a, you know, as a partner, as somebody that you can offer NMI is just a must because there's so many integrations they already have. You're going to, you, there's no doubt if you're selling merchant services, you are going to run into situations with a merchant where you need NMI to do the integration. Um, and then Patty, I think we should also mention the fact that when we say that they're processor agnostic, you know, right, right. it's one thing to say, oh, we're processor agnostic. Well, yeah, but how many how processors many process- do you integrate with? Right. Exactly. Yeah, it doesn't do any good if you say your processor agnostic, but you only integrate with one or two. Um, they have over, I believe it's 200 processing companies that they integrate with in the NMI gateway. 
that is true flexibility. That is what processor agnostic really means. Yeah. And I think it's, it's things like that, that, you know, offer the promise of, um, you know, maximum revenue potential right. and margin. Right. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, without further ado, head over to ccsalespro.com slash NMI, Nancy, Mary, I. So NMI, so ccsalespro.com slash NMI and check it out, fill out the form, click learn more. They will follow up with you and give you some great information. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. So James, uh, PayPal is making a big play for brick and mortar merchants. I've seen uh, this. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's vying for that uh, omni-channel in, in that once via in that omni-channel space now with right. what it's calling PayPal Zettle. Yes, I, and yeah, that, you I, know, I got to tell you that's a, as names go, that is not one that's going to easily roll off one's tongue. No. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I think I emailed you about this the other day yes, that, that did, I experienced right. it because we have a uh, we have a, a freelancer that we use for some web design stuff. Uh huh. And uh, we just started using him, and he wanted to be paid through PayPal. Uh huh. Well, I hadn't been in my PayPal for quite some time, and so I logged in online. And I'm like, this isn't my home screen. And it's a full right? page ad for Zettle. I know, uh, I know. At this point of sale. And I'm thinking, oh, okay. <laughs> they've, they've taken out all the stops on this one. You know, yeah. I've seen ads ever since I first wrote this story up for the green sheet. And ever since then, I've been bombarded with those full page ads. Yeah, I bet. Um, oh, she showed an interest in Zettle. But right. uh, so PayPal Zettle leverages the company's 2019 purchase of iZettle. That's a, a Swedish fintech that had developed a miniature card reader for smartphones and tablets that it had positioned to compete with Square. Okay. And, uh, PayPal paid a cool $2.2 billion for it. Wow. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, Goodness. They, were, they were in like 19 countries, but they weren't the U.S. and, and, and the U.K., some of the other big markets. But wow. Yeah. But uh, here, here's the pricing details. Um $29 for your ver first Zettle device, okay. $79 for each additional reader, okay. and it's 2.29% uh, plus $0.09 for a uh, regular transaction, Q cards, uh, Q QR code, rather, payments are priced mm -hmm. at 1.9 plus 10 Okay. Okay, and just, just to give you some perspective on this, compare this to the pending price model for PayPal online accounts. Which are three point four nine plus forty nine cents, uh, beginning in August. Uh, two nine two point nine nine plus forty nine. If you want to opt for chargeback protection. Okay. And sure. um, and then for traditional credit and debit cards, I think I covered this a few weeks ago. They used to have the same rate whether it was their digital products or or Visa, Mastercard, Amex card. Sure. Now they're doing those as a separate stripping that out on its right. own at 2.59 plus 49. Um, wow. Well, and if there's yeah. anything we know about PayPal, you know, once they set their rates, they're never going to raise them again. <laughs> yeah, right. In fact, I, I thought it was really interesting. They said this is uh, pricing at launch is how they described it, which wow. means, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah. <laughs> they're not even trying to hide their intentions. Not even trying to hide it now. So this funny. U.S. version of Zettle, Zettle 
offers an integrated solution that supports a range of small business payment acceptance object, options like PayPal accounts, credit and debit cards, Venmo QR codes, digital wallets, even the PayPal loans that they offer mm -hmm. for both in-person and online sales. Also included are uh, tools for managing sales and inventory, invoicing and accessing reports through a merchant, the merchant's PayPal business account. Right. Uh, and they're, they're claiming that um, funding will be, quote, typically within one day. Yeah. It also offers interoperability through its various partner net partners, you know, um, so you can link it to uh, their preferred e-commerce accounting and point of sale providers. Mm -hmm. Integrations apparently are already in place with a range of companies, including Big Commerce, Lightspeed, QuickBooks Online, and SalesView. Mm. So, you know, to me, it's just that, uh, you know, it really, it really highlights the importance of being able to offer an omni-channel solution right now, you yeah. know, um, yeah. PayPal. Well, and, and even, even just to me, sorry to cut you off there, but even, no. even just software in general, it's like, right. You know, are you sell? you know, we've talked about it so much, but you know, are you selling software to your merchants? Because if you're not, they're going to see this ad somewhere. Yes. Yes, they PayPal are. Will make sure that they do. And, and again, it's not, and I looked at it a little bit myself and I mean, it wasn't anything where I was like, Oh wow, that's such a huge threat. It, right. It's a threat to, uh, you know, a, a Verifone terminal, mm -hmm. um, but it's not a threat to, you know, you have a Zusa in there, you've got some other tablet system or a Clover or, you know, any of the other hundred POS systems that our, our industry is offering. I mean, right. it's not like you need to be scared that your merchant that you signed up and put on, you know, Mint last week is going to switch to Zettle. I mean, right. they're not they're going safe. To. Right. But if you have a merchant that's on a standalone terminal and you've never talked to him about a point of sale system, this might look pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's kind of how I see it, you know, and it, and it's also, you know, PayPal has always sort of lurked there in the background. We've always joked about, yeah. oh, they're not making a lot of money, but these are the incursions through which they will make money, right. you know, and they'll right. make some significant inroads. Like yeah. you said, not necessarily on on your, you know, bodega that you're helping out right now, but if uh, you're not selling like uh that bodega or pizza parlor on an omni-channel solution with some sort of software integration. Right. That, that's, that could be a problem. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting one to just see, you know, I mean, a company this large, they can milk their reputation and their brand a good bit with something like this. And yes, they can. They're going to sign up, you know, they're going to sign up 20, 30,000 merchants with this very quickly. Very um, quickly. Yeah. And then it'll be a lot, a lot of it will come down to technology. How good is it? Um, how does it compare to a square and others that they're, you know, but, but that's how I see it, you know? Yeah. And I also see, you know, and it's good that you bring up square um, because I really do see this as more as a threat for square. Yeah. Than it is for our guys, because I could see, you know, I know several really small merchants around where I live, you know, little country stores that accept square. Right. But this could be a lot better than Square um, for them. Um, you know, gives them a more robust offering at least. Right. Well, and at the very least, and and you know, obviously, Square and PayPal and Stripe and these others are a massive existential threat to our industry, of course. Which, we, which we recognize. But right. Um, I think your point is, as far as short term, anyway. You right. know, at the very least, the cut the same customers that Square is going after to grow 
those are the same exact customers that Zettle is going to go after with, with one big difference, of course, and credit where credit's due. Square has expanded dramatically their technology to reach into those restaurants and larger businesses yes. where Zettle wouldn't really be enough of a solution for them. I feel like it's more of a, it's more, it's interesting. It's almost like a flank, you know, it's like PayPal is going after the merchants that made Square successful. Mm-hmm. And now Square's leveraging that success to kind of try to get away from those merchants right. and get to the larger, more profitable ones. But, right. um, you know, they have to protect their flank. And so it'll be interesting to see how Square or how uh, PayPal, you know, <clears throat> attacks and then how Square defends that. But, you know, we see this battle playing out. But, of course, we can't kid ourselves. I mean, ultimately, they're going after the, you know, PayPal will take the same path that Square took. Once they get successful, what are they going to do? Yes. Well, they're going to build something for the fine dining restaurant. So they're right. they're all coming for us. And, you know, they're, they're all a threat, uh, maybe short term, you know, I don't see Zettle being a, a massive, but I'll tell you an interesting call. I just had a, a consulting uh, gig, um, a remote call probably two hours ago. Uh-huh. And, you know, it was a uh, ISO owner with two of his agents on the call. And we were just talking, you know, the, the call was basically what issues are you facing out in the field? And the one said, well, I just moved to a new city and 70% of the restaurants I walked into out here have toast, (laughs) you know, and I'm like, well, all right, let's have a conversation. So, you know, these companies that, you know, are operating outside of our world, you know, they are absolutely making headway and every merchant they sell, every merchant that gets the Zettle point of sale system, every merchant that gets the square register, every merchant that gets toast, that's a merchant that just became 10 times harder and more expensive for our industry to steal back. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely keep us posted on this one, Patty. It'd be interesting to see how it plays out. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. And we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.